Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, you know, one of the things that I, I reflect on uh, a lot is is this thing that I learned. I think I, I learned it from uh, Rabbi Cardozo that, about um, this philosopher Schopenhauer, very famous philosopher, and that he hated Jews, and the reason why he hated Jews was because he blamed optimism on, on Jews. Like, the fact that people have hope in the world, he blamed on Jews. Which sounds, to me, that's somewhat hilarious, because it's sort of like, like hope and optimism like basically keeps us alive, and here he's like hating Jews for like infecting the world with hope, so to speak. So, anyway, the... Uh, the grim reality is that he, he looked around and he just saw a horrible wor- world and made worse by this sort of like sense of hope that people had in it. Like if people at least knew that it was just horrible through and through, then, then maybe they'd be able to cope with it better. I, I guess that was what he was thinking. Um, but, but it's important to understand that, that, that we Jews don't, don't believe in, 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 in optimism and, 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 and hope and everything like that just because we, we have sunny dispositions is because God himself has promised us that, that the world is evolving toward perfection. That there's, there's a path to the world. And I always like to, um, to quote this teaching that I, I, I learned from, from Rabbi Tatz. Uh, he, he, he said that just the very fact that the, the Torah begins with the word breishis, which means in the beginning, that in itself, the word beginning implies middle and end. In other words, the very first word of the Torah is telling you that you're on a journey, that this is a process, that something greater is unfolding. And, um, of course, the, the, the Zohar teaches that the, the Torah is a blueprint for the universe. So the very first word of the blueprint is telling you that the world is heading towards someplace. It's evolving towards someplace. And, of course, we have all the prophecies from God that, that the world is in fact going to reach this place of, of peace, of, of an, an end to the Yetzirah, the an end to hatred, and just clarity and a revelation of God's oneness. So, so I bring all this stuff up right now because I want to show you uh, another example of this. We're in Parshas Ekev, which is, uh, these are the sort of the home stretch Parshas, uh, Torah portions that, that we read every year as we get toward Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year. Now, the new year, of course, is when this new light comes down and our new destiny for the year is about to sort of form. And, of course, right now during this period, as we finish Av and as, as, as Elul approaches, and, of course, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, the ten days in between, everything leading up to um, Hoshana Rabbah, we have this tremendous opportunity to, right now, to, to shape the year that is sort of like like all the letters, so to speak, all the osios are, are coming together, they're forming this, this, this pattern, this, uh, you know, this imprint of the year that's about to take place. And of course, so much of it depends on us and, and what we're doing right now in terms of making a vessel to hold this new light. Um, but I want to show you this, this idea of optimism for a moment. So, so one of the, the Parshas, this week's Parsha that we just did, begins with the word Vahaya. Now Vahaya, the Gomorrah says, when you see the word Vahaya, that means something positive is about to happen. So as we're heading toward the new year, we have this Parsha with the very first word Vahaya. Now, what's significant, the reason why I'm bringing it up right now, is because everybody knows each of the 12 months of the year has something called a Tziruf, which is a different permutation of the Yudke Vavke. That's God's holiest name. 
And there's 12 different ways to combine these letters in order to get, um, and they correlate with the 12 months. And each permutation of the letters is for each is for one month, and, and it, it, it shows you the personality of the month. That, that's, that, that's the point. So what is Tishrei is the month where Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is. Tishrei is, is when the month when the whole blueprint for the coming year comes down. Rosh Hashanah, of course, is the first day of Tishrei. It's called Yom Hadin, right? The day of judgment. So what is the combination of the letters of God's holiest name for the month of Tishrei? Do you know what it is? Vahaya, which is this word which promises something very positive. Right? So, in other words, in other words, here you see, like, on a more elemental, more almost scientific level, if you will, I mean, we're talking Kabbalistically right now, but in terms of the, if you want to look at little imprints of, of energy signatures and things like that, you see right on the first day of Tishrei, that you see the word Vahaya, which is very positive. It means that whatever is happening is happening for the good. That the din that's coming down, the judgment that's coming down, is coming down for the good. It's a very optimistic view of, of life. It's very optimistic. It's extremely optimistic. Um, by the way, as we're talking about Rosh Hashanah, the, the Balaturim brings down that the word Breshis, again, the first word of the, of the Torah, if you rearrange the letters of Breshis, it, it's, it's, it spells Aleph B'Tishrei, the first day of the month of Tishrei. Which is, which is, that's amazing. That's amazing. Because that we're saying that basically this is the creation of the world. Talking about, and if you want to get super deep, the creation of the world in thought. Right? Because we have two different calendar dates that we, that the uh, sages argue. When did creation begin? Was it the first day of Nisan or the first day of Tishrei? So they say in the first day of Nisan, that's when creation itself, like, got off the ground. But what about the thinking about creation? When did the thought go up in God's mind for creation? That's Aleph B'Tishrei. That's Rosh Hashanah. So what's, what's exciting about that is that you know that the more sort of like um, preliminary the process, the more the preliminary stage of the process is, the greater an impact you can have in the shaping of the end result. In other words, if someone says, you know, I want to have a party, and it's going to take place at, um, you know, at this venue, and we're going to serve all of this food and everything like that, and they've got all the details mapped out. Okay, you can maybe influence it a little bit. But if someone says, you know what, I want to throw a party, then all of a sudden you can say, well, what are, how about we have it on a boat? How about, we ha how about we have a basketball party? How about we have, like, a charity marathon run? Right? I mean, you can take it in any direction, right? Because the thought itself is just at the most preliminary stage. So, Aleph B'Tishrei, this is when the thought goes up. Like, the creation yet hasn't been formed yet. So, that's the point where you can have the greatest impact in terms of influencing the year that's about to unfold. Right? So, that's, that's Rosh Hashanah. That's Aleph B'Tishrei. That's Breshis. Right? Same letters. Aleph B'Tishrei. The first of the month of Tishrei. Um, okay. So all this is very positive. Uh, but I want to I go further. So, so these, all these Parshas are, are, 
are very, very beautiful. It's, it's Moshe Rabbeinu talking. And he's talking about so many beautiful things. He's really talking about the human experience and what's it like? Like the first four books, you have a lot of, you know, historical narratives and you have a lot of mitzvahs. But here you just have Moshe, Parsha after Parsha, just talking from his heart, so to speak. Just what it's like to go through it and the challenges that, that we're going to face. It's a very grounded, um, very relatable kind of human experience of, of the Torah. And, and one of the things that, that uh, Moshe is, is talking, is telling us, urging us about, is about taking credit or not taking credit for our own deeds. In other words, he's sort of warning us that, you know something, don't, don't start thinking that the positive things that are happening, like if you start feeling like everything is because all the good things in your life are because of all the things you did right, your own righteousness, you're going to get yourself in trouble. You're going to become arrogant. And that's going to backfire against you. Basically, you're going to start to think of yourself as the final authority. Because you're going to see yourself as the source of all good. And since you yourself are the source of all good, then really it's ultimately about you and the decisions that you're making. And then it's a half step away from worshiping idols, basically. That's the slippery slope. That, 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 that Moshe is warning us against. So, I think that that's an introduction to what I want to talk about right now. We, because, you see, this is a very challenging idea in terms of being a healthy, grounded, spiritual person. Because, you see, the danger is, is that if I don't take credit, or if I don't feel good about the things that I'm doing, then I start to feel like, you know, what difference does it make? I mean, I've heard very spiritual people say, and, and, and I've been in this category at, at, at certain points in my life, where it's sort of like, you know, basically, in trying to show that God, that everything is from God, in the most positive way, there's a way where you can start to just feel like you're a nothing. And that's not great either. In other words, you start to think, you start to think, you know, everything that I'm doing, all the deeds that I'm doing, really, ultimately, they're worthless because everything is from God. And so if all the things that I'm laboring so hard to do are worthless, then on some level, I must be worthless too. Now, these are, these are sort of emotional connections that people are making. They're not thinking them through. They're not saying, oh... I've reached such a high spiritual level, I've realized my own worthlessness. <laughs> like, people, it doesn't happen like that. It's, it's on a much more subtle level. But then it, it then tends to corrode your insides and starts to negatively affect your relationship with God. So, so here's our challenge. How can we attribute everything to God? Because ultimately, that's the truth. Everything is from God, right? But at the same time, how can I also feel like I'm a creation of God and very valuable as well. Right? This is, this is the challenge. And it's not, it's not easy, actually. It, it might sound like, oh, well, you just do this or that. It's not easy. It's not easy. And even if you get the balance, it changes every day. 
because your life circumstances are like a kaleidoscope that are changing around you and it changes every day and you constantly have to revise your equilibrium like if you've ever seen a gyroscope a gyroscope like anywhere you turn it it, it still is able to right itself a healthy spiritual integrated person has to be like a gyroscope no matter what circumstances that they're in they're able to reacquaint themselves and rewrite themselves so that they so they're in balance with with whatever energy is coming down in terms of their relationship with God see you have to understand something we have many paradigms for our relationship with God there is avinu malkeinu right that's our father our king sometimes God is the the father the parent so to speak and sometimes we're the child it's a very close relationship Sometimes it's king and subject, right? So God is the king and I'm the subject. How am I ever going to get to see the king? The king is in his castle. He's far away, right? Sometimes it's best friends. Okay, great. I'm best friends with the king. This is awesome. This is awesome. Sometimes, like in Shir Shirim and what Rabbi Kiva says is the holy of holies, the relationship is two lovers, which is like the most intimate relationship, right? So, so you have lovers, you have best friends, you have parent and child, you have king and subject, you have all these things. And you have to know that on some level, they're all going on at the same time. And you have to know on a different level when a particular paradigm is more shining and is more in place so that you can run with that relationship, right? So, so it's, it's very... You, it, again, it's like this kaleidoscope. It's changing around you. You have to be a gyroscope within the kaleidoscope, okay? That's... that's I, I am not trying to be flowery right now, but I accidentally said something I think right. <laughs> I'll say it again. You have to be a gyroscope within the kaleidoscope, right? That's, that's, that's what it's about, right? So, okay, so let's, let's move forward. Some people feel as though, you know what? God, anything good that's happening to me, it's from you. And anything bad that's happening in my life, it's because of my own wrongdoings. Right? That's how some people go through life. Other people go through life this way. God, whatever good is happening in my life is because I did it. And whatever bad is happening in life is because you did it. <laughs> if you would just get out of my way, <laughs> I could get something done. <laughs> That's how other people view things. Right? So, what's, so how are we, again, let's get back to our initial, our initial question. Right? How can we achieve equilibrium where we're properly crediting God as the source of all blessing and the source of everything, but at the same time giving ourselves a meaningful weight in terms of the relationship so that, so that we're also valued? Okay. So I'm going to tell you a classic, classic Torah that you all know. But sadly, most people don't know part two of this Torah. And if you don't know part two of this Torah, you don't understand the teaching at all. Okay? So here's the Torah, and you'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. I do know what he's talking about. 
that a person has to have two pieces of paper, one in each pocket, right? So I've seen this from the, the Kutzka Rebbe. Um, so, so one piece of paper says, the entire world was created for me, and the other piece of paper says, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Okay, so most people hear that and they think they understand that, but they haven't heard part two. Part two is, you have to know when to pull out each piece of paper. So let me explain. Imagine someone insults you, and you pull out the piece of paper, the entire world was created because of me. <laughs> Who are you to insult me, who the entire world was created for? That would be an example of not knowing when to pull out each piece of paper. Someone insults you, you pull out the piece of paper of nothing but dust and ashes. So, why should I fight you? Okay, so you insulted me? Okay. I'm nothing anyway. So you, so you insulted me. I, I, I'm nothing anyway. Someone comes up to you and says, um, you know, can I have some tzedakah? Right? And you have money in your pocket. And you have money that you can give the person. And you pull out the piece of paper, I'm nothing but dust and ashes. Who am I to give you money? You're the person who's got some money in his pocket right now. That's who you are to give me money. Again, it, it's not enough to understand this, this, these two sides of the spectrum. The whole world was created for me, and I'm nothing but dust and ashes. You have to know when to apply each of the thoughts. Okay. So that's, that's, one, that's one paradigm. That's one way to, 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 to solve this problem that, um, you know what? Everything's for, for, from God, right? Meaning I'm nothing but dust and ashes because really God, everything's from you. But at the same time, the whole world was created because of me. So I have value. This is, this is one way to do it. Okay, so now I want to tell you um, some Torahs from the Chidush Arim. He's going to give us another paradigm. And in some ways, well, look, whatever works for you is good. That's the bottom line, but this next version feels more like Reb Shlomo. You know, of course he learned the Chidush Arim along with everything else in the world, but somehow this feels like maybe a path that if you can get to this place it feels even higher. So what's this path? What's this next path? Again, we're trying to answer the question how can I not I think the, the old fashioned way of saying it in terms of the English Torah, how can I not wax fat and kick? Right? That's like one of those old Englishy ways that they, they translate it. In other words, like, good things are happening to me, now I'm sort of taking credit for everything, and now I'm becoming rebellious. That's, the, that's, the, that's the, one of the primary riddles of the human condition. This is a big subject we're, we're trying to tackle right now. Okay, so what's the Chidush Arim saying? So we were learning it in Parshas V'yaz Chanan, and he continues to elaborate it on it over the these these parshas that in in Shemayim in heaven there's a giant treasury of free gifts 
giant storehouse of free gifts. And then he brings up a, uh, a very real question, beautiful question, which is, he says, you know, everyone wants to know if there's such a giant storehouse of free gifts, where are my free gifts? Right? How come I'm not getting any free gifts? <laughs> this is what people want to know when they learn about this. And he gives a super brilliant answer. He says, you know what the problem is? Everyone is walking around feeling deserving and like they're owed past payment. Like, everyone is like, feels like, God, I've been invoicing you. I've been invoicing you for, for months, for years now. So, so anything that comes, you owe me God. You owe me God. So, you can't get a free gift if you feel like it's payment. If you feel like you're deserving and that it's payment, it can't come from the treasury of free gifts. The treasury of free gifts only goes to people who feel as though they're not owed anything. If you feel like you're not owed anything or you're not deserving of anything, then all of a sudden the treasury of free gifts opens up for you and you can start to get gifts from the treasury of free gifts because you feel like you're not owed anything. Now this is an amazing idea and we're going to spend a little more time on this. This is an amazing idea because ironically the best way to get something if you want to get something and all of us want something, right? The best way to get something is to feel as though you're not owed anything. <laughs> If you feel like you're owed something, all of a sudden you close yourself off from the treasury of free gifts. If you feel as though you're not owed anything, now you have a better chance of getting something. This is, this is an interesting irony. It's an interesting paradox. So, so who is the most deserving person in, the, in terms of just pure merits? Let's just talk pure math. Who's the most deserving person in, in history? So... Let's say it's Moshe Rabbeinu. Let's say it's Moses. Okay, so so Moses is praying to get into the land of Israel, and it says that he was asking for admission as a free gift, not because he's owed it or deserves it or has merited it. So if Moshe is on the level of asking from God for a free gift, how about the rest of us? We don't have to cling to our paltry accomplishments. You know, if Moshe's so beyond us, and he's saying, I'm not deserving of anything, just give it to me as a free gift, then he's opened up the storehouse for all of us. That's what the Chidush Arim says. That Moshe Rabbeinu opened up the storehouse of free gifts for, for us for all generations. Okay. So now, I want to add something. Actually, this is the Chadush makes this point, but I'm going to get there in my own words. This is a very dangerous path. He doesn't say that. I'm saying that. This is a very, very dangerous path. And I'm going to give a suggestion of how we can actually do it, though. Okay? Why is it dangerous? Because if a person walks around with the best of spiritual intentions, saying, I'm not deserving of anything, and I'm not owed anything. At a certain point, 
a person starts to feel like, then why am I doing any of this? If you're going to give it to me for free anyway, then what worth is anything that I'm doing? And, and this, can, this, is very, this is very, very hard. Okay? So, so I'm going to suggest something that the Chidush Rim himself says. How, how it is possible to be able to stay on this path. How do you stay on this path of saying, God, everything, I, whatever you give me, I, I, don't, I don't deserve it. I actually don't deserve it. Not like false modesty, I don't deserve it. You know, like, no, 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 please, everyone, hold your applause. Please, please, please. No, not, not on that level. On the level of saying, I legitimately, wh- wh- what did I do to deserve anything? What did I deserve to do to, to deserve any of your kindness, God? I didn't do anything. Okay, maybe I did that. But God, you gave me the ability to do that. that. So it's all from you anyway, right? Now this is a beautiful, exalted level, but how do you maintain it? So here's, here's the secret. You have to be in a love relationship with God, and you have to understand that the reason why God is giving you all of these things that you don't deserve is because He loves you so much, and because you love Him so much. If this is in the context of a love affair that you're having with God, then you can be in this place of going, I don't deserve anything, and whatever you give me, how did you do it? It's so amazing. Thank you, God. Then it can work. Then it can work. But to be in a love affair, you have to actually be in a love affair. So how do you be in a love affair with God? And by the way, I always like to mention this because, you know, the Rambam is always quoted by everyone as our consummate rationalist. Right? The Rambam says that a person has to be walking around lovesick with God. That's our consummate rationalist talking. Okay, so what does that mean to be lovesick? What does it mean to be in a love affair? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. Can you imagine you say to someone... You say to your, like one of your best friends, you say, I, I have news. What's your news? I am just entered into a very passionate love affair. What? Yeah, yes, yes. This is so exciting. I'm, it's very exciting. What, what, how often do you guys talk? Never. <laughs> but you guys see each other, right? Nope. Okay, so I would suggest this passionate love affair is not going to last very long. (laughs) If you want to be in this type of relationship with God where you can maintain this level of saying that, God, I don't deserve anything. Wow, you just gave me another day. Thank you, God. I woke up. My eyes are open. This is awesome. Thank you, God. I can't believe it, you know? You have to talk to God. Right? You would talk to another person who you were in a love affair with, right? You have to talk to God. So what does that mean? That means that when you're, whenever you can do this in a way where you're no, not self-conscious. So in LA, it's very good because people spend a lot of time in cars, right? You're in, you're in your car. This is perfect place to talk to God. You're even you're in your house or your room alone, whatever it is. Fantastic place to talk to God. And, and what does Rabbi Nachman say? Again, these are the different paradigms. You talk to God like he's your best friend. Right? 
And that's the, that would be the most normal way in the, in the context of this love affair. You wouldn't say, God, would you like to drink some wine right now? You know what I mean? That's like a little bit nutty. You know what I mean? It's like, you, you're not talking, it's not the Shir Shirim talking. It's the best friend talking. It's the best friend, but that best friend talking is the, is essentially the Shir Shirim talking. You know? So, so, and you talk, and you talk at every occasion, whatever it is, right? And when you do a mitzvah, you understand a mitzvah is a, is a tying together. There, it's, a, it's a moment of actual communion, actually. So you, you view each mitzvah as like this coming together. Wow. Like, you know, they say... There's a famous Hasidic story. I don't remember the name of the Rebbe, but the, the story goes that um, someone sits down by a Rebbe and, and the person says, you know, really, what's the difference between you and me? He says this to the Rebbe. He says, you pick up an apple and you say, Bray Priya eats and eat the apple. And I also pick up an apple and I say, Bray Priya eats and I eat the apple. And the Rebbe said back to him, yeah, but you pick up the apple and say, Bray Priya eats because you're, because you're, hungry, and you want to eat an apple. I pick up the apple so that I can say Bray Prihayetz. <laughs> I'm eating, I'm, to, to me the highlight is the ability to say the blessing itself. And that's, that's the moment, and then you bring that into the eating, right? So with that in mind, it's, it's um, a bit of an aside, but I saw this from Rabbi Einhorn, uh, in the name of the Gra, the Vilna Gon, something very, very beautiful. So, you know, by the way, all, all blessings, uh, with the exception of two in the Torah, all blessings are what we call um, derabanan. They're, they're from the rabbis. But there are two blessings that are actually in the, in, the, in the Torah itself, in the Chumash itself. And one of them is, and they're interesting, and the, the, the Vilna Gon contrasts them in a very beautiful way. So, so what are the two blessings? One of them we just had in this week's Parsha, which is the, the, what we call benching, the, the after blessing, after you finish a meal where you ate some bread. Okay, that's the benching. That's a mitzvah der Raisa. That's in the Torah itself. What's the other blessing? It's the birkasa Torah, the blessing that you say before you learn Torah. And everyone should know that, um, you know, I don't know where you are in your life in terms of Torah observance, but... Like, for instance, before you listen to a talk like this, you should say the blessing over the Torah. That, that's important, because that's, that's, that's a mitzvah deraisa. So, and it's short. It will take you 30 seconds. So, uh, anyway. So, so again, the, the, the Vilna Gon contrasts these two blessings. You, he notes that, isn't it interesting that Birkas Hamazon, the, the blessing... Uh, that you say after the meal, which is from the Torah itself, is an after-blessing. Right? You say it after you finish the meal. And the rabbis derive, if you say this blessing after you've eaten and your stomach is no longer hungry, how much more so should you say a blessing before you eat when you actually are hungry and that's the point where you're going to enjoy the food the most? Okay? That's the logic. So the after blessing is from the Torah, 
The initial blessing they derive from that logic, and the initial blessing is from the rabbis. Okay. So now, let's look at Birkas HaTorah. Birkas HaTorah, the, the blessing in the Torah is before you learn, but then the rabbis added the after blessing, right? Because like, for instance, when you get called up for an aliyah for the Torah, the, the person says a blessing before the person reads from the, from the Torah scroll, and then you say a blessing afterwards, right? So, so the after blessing is from the rabbis. The initial blessing is from the Torah. So you see there's a contrast, right? You make the blessing of the Torah beforehand, and you make the blessing of the food afterwards. And the other ones are provided by the rabbis. Okay, so now we're ready for the explanation. So Rabbi Einhorn explains in, in the name of the, the Vilna Gon the following. That when it comes to physicality, the initial rush of pleasure comes at the beginning stage. Right? That's physical things. But when it comes to spiritual things, the chief spiritual high comes after you finish engaging in the spiritual act. And, and so that's, 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 that's very interesting. In other words, the, 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 the physical stuff, after you're sated, so to speak, you know, you're less and less interested. Whereas with spiritual stuff, as you engage, you actually grow more and more interested as it, as it, as it unwinds. And so that's a difference between body and soul, and that's reflected in the, the nature of the blessings themselves. Okay. So, so just to sum up, just to sum up this part, It's, it's very important to be a gyroscope within a kaleidoscope, right? It's very important. And the way to maintain that equilibrium, really, is ultimately to be in this love affair with God. This is, this is the highest way to do it. And by the way, don't think that, that a love affair doesn't have a sense of yira in it also. Because Yira Shemayim, which we, we, there's, remember, we translate it as fear or awe, right? So we have what's called the higher Yira and the lower Yira. The lower Yira is, if I do something wrong, God is going to punish me. There's a role for that, by the way. There's absolutely a role for that, because there have to be ground rules in terms of a relationship, right? Like, if, if you're in a relationship where, God forbid, your partner hits you, you walk out of the house. You grab a suitcase, you put clothes in the suitcase, and you leave. You walk out of the house. That is ground rules. The other person has to understand, they just crossed a red line. You don't, you don't stand for that, right? That's, that's, that's what it is. Because if you stand for that, then all of a sudden you've signaled, whether you mean to or not, you might have a big heart, oh, he was in a bad mood, oh, I did this thing to provoke him, oh, I shouldn't have said that just when I said it. Once you excuse that behavior, you are giving them permission to engage in that behavior. Whether you realize it or not, you are giving them a green light to hit you again. I'm talking about male or female. There are abused husbands also. That's a reality. Okay? So, 
you, you don't do that, okay? Fear of punishment means ground rules, okay? And we need to have that in terms of our relationship with God as well. Okay. But then we have what's called the higher yira. The higher yira is, would be translated in English as not as fear, but as awe. So I heard in the name of the Baal Shem Tov a way to imagine this. Like imagine you're walking into the king's palace, right? Everything is so beautiful and grand and everything like that. And you're just being so careful. You don't want to knock over like a, an expensive vase or, or, or put you know, your muddy shoes on the, on the floor or the carpet. You want to just, and you want to speak very nicely to everyone who's in the king's palace, right? It's just this sense of, of awe, right? But again, it's a sense of awe. It's, 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 it's a sense of almost like constriction in a way, right? Because you're watching your behavior, being very careful about your behavior. Love is more of an outpouring, right? You can be a little bit more aggressive, right? And so the balance between love and awe, the rabbis compare to the two wings of a dove. In other words, for a dove to fly, it needs two wings, right? And they say that our wings are yira and ava, awe and love. And they have to be in proper balance with each other. I don't know if you've ever seen something. If one is injured, what happens is the, the dove or the whatever it is will just go in circles. If one is injured. But if both of them are strong, then it can fly forward and make progress. You see? So this is one of the things I, I, I talked about it a, a while back, but it's worth reviewing. I call it a spiritual self-exam. You want to give yourself a spiritual self-exam? Here, here's one way to do it. To make sure that your awe and your, and, and your, and your, and your, your fear and your love are in proper balance with each other. If a person feels like, you know what? I don't keep that mitzvah, and 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 God loves me so much, it's fine. Okay. That would be too much love. <laughs> you need a yira injection. Okay? If someone is walking around saying, uh, oy, oy, oy. I, 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 I did the wrong thing just there. God is going to like zap me and kill me. How am I going to get through this hour without being struck down by God? That person needs an injection of love. To a place where you, you have a nice balance. That's, that's, that's how to do it. And this is something that you have to monitor your behavior. And you have to see how you're feeling about God. Right? Because when, you know, imagine you get, you, your cell phone rings and you've got caller ID and someone's calling you and you don't take the call. And you're not busy. <laughs> you're just not in the mood. <laughs> It's like, you know what, maybe another time. I'm not in the mood right now, okay? I'm not, all right, these things are complicated, I get it. But let's just say as a generalization, there's probably a chance there's something a little bit off with that relationship. If you're not in the mood and you're not doing anything at the time to take the call, probably something is off in the relationship. If you're not in the mood to talk to God, there's probably something a little bit off in the relationship. 
you're either feeling like, you know what, God loves me so much, he doesn't care if I don't take his calls. It's too much love. Or if you feel like, oh, he's just, God's just, I can't talk to God right now because if I engage in a conversation, he's just going to start yelling at me. That's too much fear. And you are at the controls. You get to equalize that relationship. And as Rabbi Nachman says, begin again now. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to hit the reset button and go, okay, God, fresh slate, let's begin again now. And this is a very valuable tool to be able to know that you have at your, at your disposal this reset button where you can say, let's begin again now. Right? And then over the course of beginning again, if there's some outstanding issues, you can get to the outstanding issues when it, when it feels comfortable to, to do that. Right? Okay. So now, I want to switch gears, if I may, just talk about something else. Is that okay? Yeah? Okay. Let's, let's talk about something new. And, you know, because it's Torah, everything ties in with each other, but let's just discuss something new right now. I noticed something um, which I got kind of excited about. Uh, which is in this week's Parsha, it's talking about God says to Moshe, he says, you see, we're coming up to Rosh Chodesh Elul, which is a very, very big date on the, on the, on the Jewish calendar. The month of Elul, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, each of the letters of the name Elul, the name of the month, stands for a different word, Ani Lidodi Vidodi Li, which means I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. Right? This is from the Song of Songs. So it's, it's this month of this intensification of this love relationship before Rosh Hashanah is coming. Again, again, you see the balance between Yira and Ava. Right? Before you enter into Yom Adin, the Day of Judgment, which is coming up, that's Rosh Hashanah, right? You have an entire month of love. Do you understand? So again, this is just another example of a balanced relationship. Or again, of being the gyroscope within the kaleidoscope, right? You know, just maintaining your balance as, as the times shift, okay? So, see, because the only way that you can really be effectively judged is if you know that the one who is judging you is the one who loves you the most. That's the only way it works. And by the way, the Torah itself tells you this. The Torah itself tells you this. You know, this is my own observation, but it's very hard to argue with. After it says, Shema Yisrael, Shem Elokeinu, Shem Echad, which is the whole kind of premise of Judaism in one verse of the Torah, that God is one, right? The whole world exists within His oneness. What's the very next word in the Torah scroll, right? Not in your prayer book, but in the Torah scroll after the word Echad, that God is one, What's the next word? Viahafta, and you should love him. It's telling you if you want to make the system work, the Torah itself, God Himself, is telling you if you want to make the system work, you've got to activate the love. You have to. It's the only way it works. 
Um, and then, of course, you need the year as well, as we were saying, the fear slash awe itself. You need that too. Okay. So, so we know that we get the first set of tablets on Mount Sinai, the first luchos in Hebrew, is that how, that's how you say tablets. And of course, we worship the golden calf and Moshe smashes them. Okay? Moshe prays for another 40 days. He's up on Mount Sinai. By the way, this is just something to keep in the back of your mind. It's a very amazing thing. How, how old did Moshe live to? 120. Okay? So, something very interesting. When he got the Torah, the first time that he gave it, he was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Then we worship this, the, the golden calf. Then he goes back to Mount Sinai for another period of 40 days and 40 nights, praying that the sin should be forgiven. God forgives it. Then he comes down. Then God says, come up again and carve out two new stone tablets. Right? These are the second luchos. And Moshe Rabbeinu is up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and that, 40, that period ends on Yom Kippur. That's where we get Yom Kippur from. Comes down, that's Yom Kippur. That's the day when all sins are forgiven, right? Between God and man, not between person and person. Those you have to atone for interpersonally. So, what, so in other words, we've got three sets of 40 of Moshe on Mount Sinai, which adds up to 120, which is the number of years that he lived. Isn't that cool? He was up on Mount Sinai for 120 days, and he lived 120 years. Right? One day, one year for each day at Mount Sinai. Okay. So, when Moshe Rabbeinu goes up for the third set of 40 with the second tablets, right, which is, this is the forgiveness of, right, this is the beginning of this period of love, right? God says to him, make an ark. Make an ark for the tablets, and Interestingly, God says, um, carve out the tablets and make an ark. And then it says, the Torah then goes on to say, Moshe made an ark and carved out the tablets. So all the commentators are like, hey, wait a second. (laughs) You reversed the instructions from God. God told you to make the tablets first and then the ark. But Moshe said, no, I made the ark first because where was I going to put the tablets? So, first he made the ark, then he made the tablets for the ark. And then the commentators explained that he absolutely did the right thing. Okay. So, that God only said make the tablets first because he wanted to emphasize that that was the primary thing, the tablets, not the ark. All right, fine. What's the point? Why did I get excited? I got excited because there's a lot of discussion about this ark for the second tablets and I noticed that there's no mention when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Mount Sinai the first time to make an ark. I thought that was really curious. So much discussion about the ark the second time. What about the first time? So I was discussing this with Rabbi Freeman. And I think that there are two immediate conclusions you can draw, probably more. The first conclusion is God knew that those first tablets were going to be smashed, so he knew we didn't need an ark for them. You could absolutely make that case. It's not so inspiring, by the way, but you can definitely make that case. 
But here's something a little more way out, which is that, you know why you didn't need an ark for the first set of tablets? Because every single one of us was going to be the Mishkan. Every single one. Did you ever hear people say in, in different religions, your body is your temple. Your body is the temple. This is completely a Jewish teaching. Each person was supposed to be the Mishkan. And we were supposed to carve the Torah itself in our hearts. And I'll give you just an even crazier way out visualization. There's a Pusik in the Torah that says when Moshe's on Mount Sinai, God says to him, grab the Torah in your hands and go down, down to the people. So one of the commentators, I forgot who, uh, I don't know, maybe it was the Shalah, maybe it's Rabbeinu Bechai, I'm not sure, says, why does it say grab the Torah in your hands? Because when Moshe was on Mount Sinai, the tablets were floating in the air. <laughs> That's why it says that Moshe has to grab them with his hands. So now, it's another reason why maybe we didn't need an ark the first time. <laughs> maybe the tablets were going to remain floating in the air. You know, the Sfarno, and I think the Ramban, make the case that had we not worshipped the golden calf, we wouldn't have needed a temple. Because again, we would have been that structure. You know, there's a, another teaching that enforces this. When we finish the Mishkan itself, the, the, the physical building of the temple itself in the desert, in Parsha Shmini, it begins with the word Vayihi. Vayihi, the Gomorrah says, when, you, when you've got a verse that begins with that word, something bad is going to happen. Vayihi. So the Parsha that talks about completing the Mishkan, the temple, begins with the word Vayihi. And the commentators are like, why? This is such a happy occasion. God himself says that he rejoiced on the finishing of the temple like when he created the entire world. And the Mishkan itself was a microcosm of the whole world. So it's very logical that he was so happy. So the Rishon Rebbe says, you know why it says Vayahi about the completion of the physical temple? Because we were supposed to be the temple. We, it was supposed to be us, not a building. Us. And the Sforno, and I'm sure among others, say that we're going to reclaim that status in the end of days again when we will become, each one of us will become a Mishkan again. That is, uh, that is the destiny of humanity. We are evolving toward that. Okay, so now start to wrap it up. What's one of the things blocking us from becoming a Mishkan, a temple right now? So another very famous verse in, 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 the, in this week's Parsha is, is God tells us to circumcise our hearts. What does that mean to circumcise your heart? By the way, I, I studied some of the laws of Kashrus, and, and there actually is a fatty layer on, on, a, on a heart. Like certain people, heart is kosher. Some, some segments of the Jewish people won't eat an animal heart. Others are okay with it. But you have to take off this outer layer of the heart if you want to eat it. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? 
So this idea to circumcise your heart, this is a real anatomical thing. It's not just a spiritual idea. There actually is an encasement on our heart that, that, that blocks us, that blocks us. And, and, and another way to understand what this encasement on our heart is, is to understand that it's a barrier between the mind and the heart. In other words, how does the mind and the heart become one again? By circumcising the heart, because the encasement on the heart is the barrier between the mind and the heart. It's not just stopping our heart from being a full heart. It's stopping our mind and our heart from becoming one. Do you understand? So, it's such an important commandment to circumcise your heart that it appears two, two different times in the Torah. One time God says, you circumcise your heart, and in the other place God says, I'll circumcise your heart. <laughs> so preferably, we're supposed to do it, but if we don't do it, God's going to do it. Either way, it's going to happen. Okay? You know, they talk about, I just put this in my own words, and then I want to tell you something from the Chidush Rim, and then we'll finish up. So, you know, I don't know what the current state of science is on this particular thought, but whatever it is, I'm sure there's something to it. Which is that we're only using part of our perception, our sensory perception. Now, I think that what it means when it says that our hearts will become circumcised, what I think that means is that our consciousness is going to expand radically. I think that that's what that means. You know, it's not just um, be more feeling or be more compassionate. I think that it's talking about something substantially greater than that. I think it's talking about a breakthrough in consciousness that is on our horizon. Yeah. And, you know, because we're seeing the smallest part of reality. And when we get to this place that our hearts are circumcised, to use the language of the Torah, we're going to see vast, vast quantum amounts more. Okay? So now, listen to this. Now let's get to the Chidush Erem. The Chidush Erem says, look, you see, it's such an important commandment. It says, circumcise your heart. Why doesn't it tell us how to do it? <laughs> the Torah doesn't tell you how to do it. Which is very striking. It's very striking. So the Chedusharim says, you know why? Because every single person has a different blockage and they have to figure out what their blockage is. You've got to figure out yourself. I've got to figure out myself. What's blocking your heart? What's clogging your heart? And then each one of us has to get rid of that thing. Now for some questions and answers. You mentioned uh, talking to God, okay? Yeah. Um, I have a hard time doing that. Um, it seems, it seems kind of worse. I've done it at certain times. However, thinking as if you're talking to God as opposed to verbalizing it, is that no, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. There's something, you know, for a Shema to be kosher. In other words, if the for the recitation of a Shema to be kosher, you have to hear yourself saying the words. And there is a whole 
look, I'm not an expert in the science of it, but there's this whole feedback loop of actually hearing your own words that, that, you, that you're missing. And I'm sure it's way deeper than that, by the way. But there's, see, look, this is one of the main themes that I've tried to get across through all these lectures, is we have to stop making God into an idea. God is not an idea. God is the reality of the entire universe. Until you start treating God as the reality of the universe, that wherever you go, you're, we put it a different way, swimming through God. You're constantly in this conversation with God, with your physical body and the people you're talking to and the, the objects that you're holding or interacting with. It's, it's, it, words make something real. It, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's just you're accessing this dimension that you're in and you're making it real. And it doesn't reach that level of reality unless you're actually speaking the words. Now, does that mean that thinking the thoughts is bad? No, it's great. It's just not what I'm talking about. It's just not, you're, you're not going to get to that breakthrough level of relationship. And, you know, Rebbe Nachman, you should read some of this stuff by Rebbe Nachman. Rebbe Nachman talks to and counsels a person to whom it's difficult for. You're not the only one. For many, many people, it's difficult. For many, many people, it's difficult. I would, my small advice would be just to start by saying thank you. Just start saying, God, thank you. Thank you for, well, I've got clothes on right now. Thank you, God, for, um, for the clothes that I'm wearing. Um, Thank you, God, for, uh, I, you know what, I, I woke up in bed this morning. Thank you for the roof over my head. And just start thanking God for just the most obvious elemental things around you. And the, 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 the key to that is that it just starts to get you talking and starts to get you comfortable with talking, right? And then the more comfortable that you get, then you'll start saying... And God, can I tell you something? There's something that's really been bothering me. And before you know it, you're transitioning into a very real conversation. But I would just begin by trying to thank God for the most elemental things. Really, like your hands, your eyes, right? Your skin. You don't have to be too creative. Just look at your body. Look at what's around you in the room. Yeah. I hear you. I get, like, for example, that, like, yeah. you know, certain things like taste, why does Hashem have to do that? So I sort of get it. Like, that is a real pleasure, and Hashem didn't have to give us, like, that that level of pleasure. But I don't know, like, I really want to connect this idea of, like, feeling 
that everything that Jen does is like a gift and I don't deserve anything, but I, I guess like I just... Yeah, and you don't deserve anything, and but you're getting it because he loves you so much and you love him so much. That's, you have to say those words. Because it's not the complete thought until you get to those words. Okay? So, w- one second. So, so, yeah, I mean, listen. There are many ways to do this. There are many ways to do this. And, and a person has to be in a period in their life and, and, and their relationship with God where they can do this. This idea of really feeling like, I'm, you know, God, you, you legitimately don't know, owe me anything, is, that is a high level. That, it's a high level. And like, for instance, Hannah, when she's praying for a child, she makes arguments, like very strong arguments with God. I mean, she, she really, she, she, she goes as far as to say, God, I'm going to make you make me have a baby. I'm going to make you do it. You know how I'm going to do it? I'm going to sequester myself with a husband that isn't mine, and I'm going to get warned by my husband, and then I'm going to do it again, so, not to, God forbid, do anything with this other man, but I'm going to sequester myself with him again, and then I'm going to have my husband take me to the Mishkan to accuse me of being a Sota, right? And then I'm going to drink the waters, and it says in your Torah itself that if a woman is innocent and hasn't committed any adultery or any crime, if she drinks the water, it's going to be a blessing for her, and one of the blessings is she's going to have a baby. So I'm going to make you give me a baby if you don't just bless me with love. So here you... And by the way, you know, and she makes other arguments too, by the way, that's just one of the arguments. So she's playing hardball with God. So there, there, are, there are ways to do this. There are ways to do this. And of course she has the prophet Shmuel. She, her prayer is answered and she's given Shmuel who's compared by King David to, to Moshe and Aaron. So she gets like one of the highest souls in history. Right? It's not like God says, okay, I'll give you someone who's going to have an IQ of like 12. You know what I mean? Like, okay, here's your kid. It, that, that wasn't, that, well, I mean, every neshama is special. I don't mean to denigrate the holiness of that child. But, but what I'm trying to say is, is that she got one of the most famous people ever, you know. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that um, there are many different ways to do it. There are many different ways to do it. I'm just telling you one particular path. But but I would dispute this idea that we're owed anything. I would dispute that. But that's kind of just where I'm at right now. If I were in a place of like intense lacking, I might be telling you something very different right now. I would say, no, we're, we are absolutely owed this. I appreciate that. Yeah. Like, I do get that it has to do with relationship because in my relationship, like, it's evolved. Like, I used to really think that, and then, like, I don't feel that, but now I think, like, it just makes sense to me. So I get that yeah. it has to do with fear. You know, I, I remember as a kid, I remember as a kid, like, saying to my mother, like, I don't remember what the context was. I just remember my ingratitude. And I, she was making me hamburgers or whatever, and I said to her, I think I said these words, you have to make me hamburgers. You have to make me dinner. Like, like I don't think, I don't know if I said that's your job, but that, that was what I meant. That's your job. 
It's what. And you know, she doesn't have to make me hamburgers. Say, so, look, you got hands, you got legs, make your own hamburgers. So I would just think about me and my mom, <laughs> and ask yourself where you fall within that. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's a super chutzpah. It's a super chutzpah, but she was also that holy. She was also that holy. See, like for instance, like Chani Hamagel was one of the great sages in the Torah and was so beloved by God. And when he, you know, back back in the day, back in the day, we're talking about, you know, around two thousand years now. There was a very simple test of whether you were like a super holy man, right? And we're talking about not a prophet, but whether you were like, like, one of the leaders, right? What was the what was the test? Whether it rained or not was life and death. Everyone was a farmer. If it didn't rain, people die. It was life and death, rain. Okay. So. When it didn't rain, people started fasting. And as it continued to not rain, the fast days increased. Right? You can read all about this in Gomorrah Tainus. Okay? And there were certain heavy hitters among the sages of the Jewish people who would be sent out. And other people would be present, you know, to witness this. They would be sent out to pray for rain. And for several of them, when they prayed for rain, it started raining. And it's sort of like, well, you can't really argue with that, can you? There, he just started praying, and it just started raining. And it wasn't raining, but then he prayed, and then it was raining. <laughs> so it's sort of like, okay, he's our guy now. Okay, that's, he's our guy. You know? So there were several people like that. And one of them was this guy, was this guy, was this giant... Um, and he prayed for rain, and it started raining very, very hard, and he said, no, no, God, not like that, like a little bit less. And then he was like, no, 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 God, a little bit more than that. <laughs> and each time he was like fine-tuning till he got the perfect rain, and the sages said, if that were anybody but you, we would excommunicate them. Because of the level of chutzpah, you prayed for rain, and we need rain so badly, and here comes the rain, and now you're going, nah, you know what, the, 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 the peas are getting into my mashed potatoes. God, you know, can you just... I don't like when they mix. You're being like a little finicky with God right now. Like, that's not cool, because like all of our lives are on the line. But then they said, but God loves you so much. <laughs> For you, you can get away with that kind of conversation. So, 
that was also Hannah. Hannah was so holy. Right? Remember, Hannah is Shmuel. Shmuel doesn't come from nowhere. Shmuel comes from Hannah. So Hannah was so holy that she could get away with talking to God like that because it was totally L'Shem Shemayim. She only wanted her kid so that she could have someone who could serve God. And in fact, when her kid finished like suckling from her, she gave her child to Eli, who is the coin gadol, and said, you raise him. I only, the only reason why I wanted him was to have an extra servant of God in the world. And you, you raise him. So it was proof that she really did want a child just to be able, to, that there should be someone more to serve God. Because I, I remember you were saying earlier about, about um, month, uh, a couple of weeks ago about, about, about uh, we must have, about, remember about the, the gifts of one of God's presents, undeserved gifts. And that, 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 that I, was, I was thinking is, I was think, wondering, um, is it important that when we pray, that our requests, we have to remember these are uh, gifts, we don't, uh, that these are undeserved gifts that we're requesting of God. Right. So again, this gets back to the idea that they're, you know, like they're different spokes on the wheel. Right. They're different. They're different ways to access God depending on where you currently are at in your life and where you currently are at with your relationship with Him. Right. So, so again, it, this goes back to this idea of the gyroscope within the kaleidoscope of all the different paradigms, and you have to know, like, where are you at right now? You know what I mean? It's sort of like. It could be that, that, you know, it's like, I've got to, the first thing I have to do, you know, the, the, the first talk I gave, the first sort of like official talk that I gave, like, like, okay, I'm giving a talk, as opposed to just saying something somewhere. Here it is, here's a talk. I called it Making Hashem Your Best Friend. That's, and I periodically resend it out, you know? It's the very first talk I gave, and there's probably about... 18 years of Torah study in that one 45 minutes. It's online if you want to find it, you know? It's just sort of like greatest hits from like over a decade, you know, of just trying to forge a relationship with God. And I called it Making God Your Best Friend because I feel like that is the foundational point, that you have to start from that place. And, and when you really do that, then I think the progressive levels can come because you have a very strong foundation in terms of your relationship, right? Then you can add in terms of Yira, you know what I mean? Like, because if you stay buddy-buddy too long, you only you will know. But at a certain point, you'll feel like, you know what, I maybe I need a little bit more Yira in there. We can still be best friends, but you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Every once in a while, I'll read an account. Like, Rebbe's Hasidic masters had good friends. And sometimes it's interesting. I've read once or twice people's, how do you balance your relationship with when your best friend is also your Rebbe? <laughs> like, this has been a real-world problem as well. Like, how people, like, try to straddle that. It's interesting. It's interesting. But, but one should attempt to do it. One should attempt to do it because sort of like building in that respect factor is is important, but usually it, it, it has to come after having that sense of, you know, that love first, I think. But everyone's different. Everyone's different.
Wait, uh, this is, I'm not sure if this is a question, it's more of a comment. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I found, and it connects, I think, very much with what you've been talking about today. I found that recently with Hibodedut, when I'm talking to Hashem, and I'm not in the most elevated mind state to begin with, I find myself starting to talk about kind of problems and things I'm dissatisfied with, and I end up getting... I also feel like my, my own mind, it's everything coming through the perspective of my mind. And so I guess start getting caught in this negative loop. And I'm like, I stop, I'm like, why am I speaking these things out loud? How is this even helping me? You know, sometimes yeah. you say things out loud and they're negative, you can say them then you get them out and you're cleansed and you keep going. But sometimes because the opposite happens where you're just reaffirming, oh man, I'm missing this and this. So I know that through love, you know, if, if my heart is more open, I know when I'm speaking yeah. to Hashem, my heart is open. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole different, a whole different thing, you know. Um, so I don't know if it was, that was even really a question. It's more of a, an observation. I, it's yeah. challenging. Last night I started talking to Hashem. After a while, I, st I stopped and I was like, I'm just finding myself getting in, in a darker, darker place with right. this conversation. Right. So I, I, I would suggest, and and I know it's hard to do, and I've I've fallen into this as as well. What you're what you're describing. I would just, you know, there's a. Um, there's a distinction to be made between just sort of like verbally downloading and actually talking to God. And so to be mindful, to the extent that we can be mindful that we are talking to God as opposed to just doing a, a, a version of talk therapy with ourselves. So because if we're just doing talk therapy with ourselves then there's no boundaries to it and no context to it. It's just we're just doing it. But if I'm always aware that this conversation is being had with the master of the universe, then I, I'm, I'll, I think I'll stay more on top of where the conversation is going. And of course you want to get it to that place where you're just talking freely, because that's when the most intimate bonding is taking place, but nonetheless within the context of understanding it's a conversation with God. Even if you if it's uh, feels one side, you know.